three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, it's been quite a while since my last podcast, and I'll spare you the minute details, but here are the headlines. Since April, my wife and I have had COVID. Our landlord sold our apartment, and we were forced to move. Then, just when we were almost unpacked and moved in uh, to our new apartment here, we learned that we now have to vacate for most of a week while they tent the apartment for termites. There's more, but you get the idea, I'm sure. Nonetheless, here we are, and it's time to get things rolling once again. Now, to begin with, I want to apologize to Jahan, who is our guest author today. And I'm really sorry for being so tardy in getting this podcast out. Charles told me about Jahan's book, uh, well, just before I came down with COVID, but I at least got to read the table of contents and was really excited about visiting with him because I had a question that I'd like to ask him. Then life got in the way, and that resulted in this long delay because this conversation was actually recorded last May. Now, the conversation we're about to listen to uh, was actually recorded during one of our live salons. And in case you aren't aware of it, when the pandemic began, I switched from doing regular podcasts to hosting live salons on Mondays and Thursdays. For the first year of the pandemic, we did two on Monday and two on Thursday. Now we've cut back to just one per day. At 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time on Monday and at 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time on Thursday. The Thursday time is early so that our fellow saloners in Europe can join us without having to get up in the middle of the night. (laughs) I post the links to these live salons ahead of time on Patreon and Discord, so you can just go to our Discord server and get the link without uh, having to be a Patreon donor. A small group of our fellow saloners, however, have been supporting me on Patreon throughout the pandemic, and for them, I also post recordings of these live salons that they can download and listen to on their own time. Right now, there are about 150 of these recordings on Patreon that cover everything from how to prepare certain mushrooms for maximum potential to THCO and many topics in between. And to give you a little idea of some of the interesting characters who show up for these salons, I've included part of the Q&A session here with questions from three of the people who were also on the Zoom conference with Charles and Jahan. One of them is a professional photographer who is into free diving. Another is an American writer and world traveler who lives in England. And the first person you'll hear asking a question is a world explorer who has tripped on acid with Dr. Albert Hoffman. And more than once, (laughs) we have an interesting batch of characters in the salon, I think. So let's get on with today's podcast, and I'll be back with some comments after we listen to this conversation. Uh, So so our our, our guest today is uh, Jahan Hamsazadeh, who just wrote this awesome book called The Psilocybin Connection, uh, which is available uh, everywhere. And uh, it's Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness and evolution on the planet and you know as a book lover the first thing i noticed you know my first real takeaway after finishing this book was what a bibliography you know you really have in in the body of this book um synthesized you know a tremendous amount of of information about uh, about psychedelics that's out there so can you walk me through some of your journey 
and what your mission for this book mm. is, because it feels like you're really laying a marker down that, you know, we're now in a new decade of psychedelic research and, and conversation. And, uh, you know, your book seems to be aspiring to be a starting point. Thank you. Yeah, that was part of the intention for it to be a platform or like a backbone for people to build off of. Um, I read Terrence McKenna's Food of the Gods at 19. I'm 38 now. And so I've had about 20 years working with his uh, Stone Ape Hypothesis. And after I was in academia the entire time, um, there was not a better theory I had come across uh, describing the emergence of humanity. And I ended up getting my master's in consciousness transformation, my doctor's in philosophy, cosmology, consciousness. So I was tracking evolution, both in terms of consciousness and biological you know, complexity. And uh, I was surprised that the theory hadn't gotten bigger or gotten more notoriety in the last few years. You know, Paul Stamets has been talking about it more and Joe Rogan has also been saying some stuff, but about five or six years ago, I got became really clear that it was probably the best idea I've ever come across. And that's a big statement. Um, I had just been finished at that time doing a year long comp exam for my doctoral program, focusing on the biggest ideas in Western history from the Greeks till now. Right. So I had been studying philosophy for a very long time. And that was, again, that was part of my doctorate and my bachelor's was in philosophy. And for me, Terrence's idea offered quite a bit. Again, it, filling the missing piece of how humanity evolved, because from the Big Bang till now, we have we can get most of the pieces of how we got here, but we don't know how we emerged from more primate forms to humanity. And I think his theory, you know, that we evolved because of symbiotic relationship with the psilocybin mushroom fills in pretty much all the gaps. Um, and in the 20 years of looking at it, I haven't come across any contradiction that holds. Not in science, not in philosophy, not in any kind of rhetorical argument and what it kind of leads us first it kind of helps fill in the identity of how we got here and kind of feels i think a big a trauma that we have of not knowing our history and how we've arrived but its significance is huge because of what psilocybin does you know i think it can kind of become also a backbone for the psychedelic uh movement uh by claiming that this is what first made us human and the psilocybin, as a lot of us know, aside from just expanding consciousness in general, creates a deep sense of empathy and ecological awareness. Mm -hmm. So, you know, chapter three was kind of focused on ecology and it was um, inspired by the work of Richard Doyle, who wrote the book um, Sex, Plants and Evolution of the Noosphere. It's uh, called Darwin's uh, Pharmacy. And he read thousands of trip reports and he deduced that the main psychedelic insight is the participant realizes they're part of a vast interconnected living system and they should be returned ecodelics. Um, so very congruent with McKenna's ideas, it seems that these psychedelics, especially those common, co the compounds found in nature like psilocybin, kind of help us become aware of the ecosystem and are here to create a state of homeostasis. And so I felt by kind of leading us back to this main identity of how we've arrived we can actually lead to a more sustainable world and increasing creativity, you know, increased creativity that can lead to art, to the sciences, to technology and help fully move our evolution forward. Yeah. One of the, one of the really interesting elements of the book is that while you acknowledge a lot of the, the value of guide work, you seem to be aiming at a much broader uh, conception of how we use psychedelics. You seem to be, uh, working with the using psychedelics for the betterment of the well, for the betterment of the whole. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to what some of the what some of your views on the broad implications of mainstream acceptance of psychedelics are. Yeah, I don't think we've come close to really fleshing out 
how beneficial they are. You know, we've been looking at things like depression, addiction, and anxiety, um, but we haven't studied so much, you know, the amount of, say, spiritual and cognitive and empathic developments, you know, so I think they are here, they can help the vast majority of people, maybe at least 90% of the population. Uh, my pretty much full-time work is as a guide. I lead legal psilocybin ceremonies in Jamaica. I've gone through many different uh, guide trainings. And so about 70% of the people come in because they're in pain. You know, so there's this impulse inside because they've tried all the other methods of therapy and medicine, and they've come to this and it's, it's helpful for about 80% of them. Um, you know, we found that it helps people 80% with treatment resistant depression um, and near end of life anxiety and so on. But this, they come in because they're in pain, but their lives transform radically overall. So it's not that they just heal the pain. For me, at the core of this kind of psychedelic therapy work is the transformation of identity. And so often with depression is a sense of low self-esteem. I don't like myself. I'm alienated. I don't belong. It's a constant internal beating down of the system that comes from this fragmented view that I'm separate from everything and everybody else. And this quickly heals that, I think, by unconditioning our social um, kind of identity of, of what we've kind of created in this culture and helps us see our deep interconnection, uh, ultimately our unity. That's just another way of saying unity, that we're ultimately one. And that goes far to say that at our core identity, we are love, which kind of, again, heals this deep sense of fragmentation. So once people's sense of self shifts inside and also the paradigm and worldview, they only not heal, but they, they transform really fast. You know, just a few sessions in the course of a year kind of, kind of catapults them forward dramatically. Can you speak a bit about what it takes to get into being a, a full-time guide? Yeah, so many routes forward. Um, the best one is to go get trained to become a therapist, you know, which, which requires a lot. It's, it's going to graduate school and then becoming an MFT and then doing on top of that a psychedelic guide training. There was other routes possible. The School of Consciousness Medicine that's in hiatus right now is putting one forward. I know there's other trainings coming up in Oregon. Uh, I just became um, a consultant for Synthesis. So Synthesis had been running um, psilocybin retreats in uh, the Netherlands for a while. They were one of the first sites. And they've just started a very comprehensive, um, I think, 18-month guide program. There's nine different modules, uh, but you also some of it involves going on a retreat into the Netherlands and working with psilocybin. And for theirs, you don't have to be a therapist. You know, they hope you have some kind of, kind of a background that was more oriented towards healing before coming into this practice, but they're willing to train people. So it, it, I would say it's a deep commitment. And once you're getting trained, it's good to be in supervision and build community around it. Uh, I think it's nice to come in as like, this is a lifetime practice and to take it very seriously. Um, people's deepest traumas can come up, right? So you have to be ready to hold the worst hell and agony as well as the deepest bliss, right? You're creating a state where, as Dan Groff, the you know psychedelic researcher, would say these are holotropic states of consciousness, states that move towards wholeness. So anything that's repressed can come up, um, including maybe one in four people could be deep sexual trauma, right? So you have to really kind of be ready, sensitive, and empathic enough to hold that level of a container. Uh, which requires ultimately just doing a lot of self-work. Aside from the training, it's constant self-work. And who should be who should be a guide? There's a lot of people that talk about this aspiration, but one of the things I liked a lot in in uh, the book is that you cited Eleanor Ott, who says um, the challenge for the new shamans today, if indeed there should be new shamans, is to maintain a strong personal ethical balance, free of self-delusion. 
This requires wisdom and knowledge and a lifetime commitment to awesome responsibility. For some few, this may be possible. For most, it is better to use their abilities in a more contained but equally effective ways as doctors, psychotherapists, teachers, artists, writers, and priests. So, you know, there she's really describing that if you have a relationship with the medicines and are called to help people, there are many paths open to you beyond being a guide or, or a, uh, a psychedelic therapist. So given the, the, the degree of specialty that an empathy that's required that you're talking about, who do you feel really should be called to, uh, to this work? And, and what should you, should you be asking yourself to kind of self-select? Is this the path for me with the medicine or is another path better suited for me with the medicine? No, as you were kind of saying, I, I think, we all have our place in the movement. So regardless of our skill or background, there's a place for you, right? And so often the idea of a guide comes up because people, there, there's roles that don't even exist yet, right? So I think you people can come with whatever talent they have to find their niche. As far as for being a guide, I think, honestly, there's a general just um, natural disposition, you know, people that have wanted to be either therapists or teachers or healers. And so there's a sensitivity and attunement to others' pain and just a deep sense of care. Uh, so much of the work is just sitting there for like six hours in just presence with a person. And so if that's hard for you and if it's, there's not this large natural just compassion, it it's, might not be helpful for you or that human, right? So it, it's a kind of a deep devotion in that moment to another human being. Um, that being said, I think the biggest kind of bottleneck moving forward for say psychedelic therapy and psychedelics are so much larger than just therapy um, is having trained individuals. So the demand is so high, like for our Jamaica retreat, I think there's 2000 people on the wait list. I know guys across the country were full, right? So where the bottom of the neck is, is having more trained people. And so we're actually needing more people in the field. Um, the demand is much larger than the supply. That being said, we also need well-trained people. And um, not everybody can afford or have access to a well-trained person. And right. So like part of the truth, you know, I've been sitting with is people in underprivileged communities and minorities uh, won't have the finances or the access to high skilled individuals. So what do you do? Um, so I've been working with a group called Silo Health for the last couple of years. And I think in three or four weeks, releasing this free online sitter program where it's a four-hour training free online all pre-recorded where people can have enough of a skill set just to sit for each other um because the, they, they can't afford thousands of dollars to go have a skilled psychedelic journey and once we move towards legalization it's probably going to cost five to fifteen thousand dollars right so again it's not it's it's not accessible and so this work is i think a lot of us believe is part of our just our human rights and so we need to get enough skill sets to enough people so we can begin to heal each other. And to what extent should somebody who is psychedelic curious be aspiring to work with a guide or a sitter versus uh, pursuing a peer group or even doing it, doing it for themselves? Um, you know, where, where are the, where are the boundaries and thresholds that a, a curious person should be thinking about in, in their own approach to this? Does everybody yeah. really need a guide? Yeah, not need. Um, what I've come to believe is it's the optimal experience to have a well-trained guide. Just like doing self-therapy is not as good as having a well-trained therapist, right? You can just go further with somebody else that knows this territory, and the whole time there is to take care of you. Um, 
that being said, as I just mentioned, it might not be accessible for everybody, but it is the optimal approach. Uh, there's a sense that you can go a lot deeper because the main thing that holds us back generally in the psychedelic experience is fear. And so you have somebody, hopefully, that you feel safer with them in the room than them not in the room. So they can calm you down, help you feel okay, hold your hand. You can process anything that comes up. And sometimes something that you can get get in a loop stuck by yourself for five hours, that loop can take maybe just five minutes with the well-trained person because they're here to reassure you and help you move forward. That being said, as I just mentioned, I don't think it's, it's very accessible to lots of people for many reasons, including it's hard to find a guy just period. And then we're doing things, you know, in Jamaica, Netherlands. And so like people have to go to entire other countries. And so the next best response is to find a peer group. You know, I'd recommend for somebody um, starting out, my recommendation isn't to go at it alone is to, again, to find a sitter, at least somebody you trust or somebody that's well experienced to have this experience with, uh, because anything can come up and that anything can come up as part of the gift. Like anything can come up. It could be exciting and transformative. It's stuff that you would never imagine could come up, but it can also be very difficult experiences that you, know, you couldn't have planned for. So again, somebody there to take care of you, I think, uh, can be very instrumental, especially the first several times. Can you carry us into what goes on for you when you're in a space where you're where you're guiding someone? What what happens to your quality of attention? What are you mm-hmm. watching for? How do you show up in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. So I had a huge life-changing psychedelic experience at 18 that really kind of set the course of my life, right? So I've been working with these substances now for 20 years and including the development and psychology of us as humans. And what I've come to believe is the deepest experience we can have is of oneness. Um, and this oneness has many representations. It could be oneness just within our being, um, a oneness within our family system, uh, with a partner, with the planet, with an ecosystem, or just with the universe or God. But that's a general movement is towards integrating more and more and creating a sense of wholeness. And so because I feel that's what our psyche is trying to do at t- every time, I'm here to help facilitate that process to point it out there's a deep, uh, great training I took aside from, I took this multi-year training of somatic psychotherapy called Hakomi, which is amazing. And then I took an additional training with a guy that formed Hakomi, John Eisman. And he, he, after 20 years of working Hakomi, he thought there was a shortcut. And he called this training called the recreation of the self that ultimately we're trying to form this whole identity and sense of wholeness has many qualities towards it, um, like including preciousness full self-esteem, uh, love, safety. So these are essential soul qualities that are under the egoic structure. So if we look at, for example, Maslow's hierarchy, you know, the bottom parts are safety, then love and belonging, then connection, then self-esteem. So a lot of people come in working on self-esteem, especially in this country, because we're not in war generally. So we're not focused on just safety. We're trying to feel good about ourselves. And once you have enough self-esteem, it's like the caterpillar turning into the butterfly, there's self-actualization and then transcendence, which is helping others. And so for me, it's helping people to move up these, the pyramids. So a lot of it's a lot of the, the damage we've gotten is around self-esteem. So again, that you are love, that you are okay, that you're all enough. Until you feel like you're enough, you can't really fulfill your potential. And that sense of deep identity can't solidify. So I'm kind of here to kind of nudge and point them into that direction until it solidifies. And one of the things that you talk about in, uh, in, in one of the latter sections of the book is doing some field work in Mexico, engaging with uh, the Mazatec traditions. And you've been speaking today about doing work in Jamaica. Uh, and you had this really wonderful observation. Uh, well, I thought it was a wonderful observation that moving into the psychedelic space uh, may be a path uh, for 
indigenous communities to reclaim power and agency. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack the lessons that you've attained in, in, in working with indigenous healers and working with indigenous knowledge and integrating that uh, into a practice that, uh, that, that also integrates Western training. Totally. Great. Thanks. Now, part of my background was uh, training for a few years with uh, Francois Borzat, who wrote the book Consciousness Medicine, and I went down there to um, Mexico with her to train with the Mazatec people. Uh, I'm, my mom was born in Mexico. Right? So I'm half Mexican. I'm half Iranian. And you know, it was kind of just sad the way I kind of grew up where there was a bit of, um, let's say, shame around being Mexican, but it was kind of seen lower then because that's the kind of culture, you know, we could just see Donald Trump's presidency of keeping people on the south down in the border and so on. And so there's quite a transformation, especially as I became more aware of the psychedelic lineages, not just in Mexico, but just in all kind of Native American cultures and Mexico being Native American. These are just people that came here about 20,000 years ago. And studying the deep history as I did my dissertation on mushroom work. Uh, was seeing that when the Europeans had come in the 1500s, um, the clergy, many of them had wrote down of massive mushroom use. So we know the, the Mayans, for example, going back a few thousand years, left about 200 different mushroom stones. But later after them, when the Aztecs were the largest empire in the area that the, the conquistadors really kind of came in contact with. And they write down that the, the inauguration of Montezuma II, their empire, probably the most powerful person in the Americas at the time, at his inauguration, everybody's taking psilocybin mushrooms. And at all these major ceremonies, they bring out psilocybin mushrooms and part of political affairs. And there's also part of family healing and divination and so on. There was about 60 million people in the Americas at the time when the conquistadors had come over to the Americas. 60 million. We're talking about this place, the North Central South America, was deeply inhabited. And I point out lots of artifacts in my book, but there's other books called like The Long Trip by Paul Devereaux that really brings down all the archaeology of how widespread psychedelic use had been in the Americas and all around the world. Right. So out of that 60 million people that were here, 90% of them had died when the Europeans came. You know, there's it was the largest genocide and ethnocide in human history. A lot of it was just because of the disease, because the Europeans came and brought disease. But they also changed the language of this area and the religion of this area, right? So all of Central and South America, for the most part, speak Spanish. They had numerous languages of their own and belief systems and temples. And uh, the clergy wrote down that they were ordered to eradicate all of that. And they also wrote down specifically also uh, mushroom use. So that was very well documented. So that whole practice that existed throughout these continents was purposely and intentionally, you know, erased. The Mazatec survived, and uh, from my understanding, probably for three different reasons. Um, they live high up in the altitude mountains in Oaxaca. So there's just a remote area. There's no reason to go there unless you wanted to go visit them. Um, they're a matriarchal culture. So it's largely women that held the ceremonies and the Europeans coming from a patriarchal culture thought people in positions of powers like the shamans would be men. So they killed a lot of the men. Um, but the ceremonies kept going underground, uh, mostly within family systems. The women work, the women's hold space for families, mostly in their homes. So it's kind of just kept quiet. And the third is that they did integrate Christianity. So if you go over there to visit the Mazatecs, it's, it's largely um, Christian iconography, most specifically the Mother Mary. They're still a matriarchal culture, so they kind of pray to the Mother Mary and so on. So this is one of the reasons they continue to exist, and it's because they continue to exist that we had gained information of the mushrooms. You know, it's Gordon Watson going there in 1955 with Mary Sabina having the mushroom experience, writing about it in Life magazine in 1957, that 
our country and culture at large became aware of psychedelics. LSD had been in the background with a few elite groups of artists and scientists, but this was a widespread article that came out and everybody became aware of it. So it's because these lineages had still ex- barely existed after this large ethnocide that our whole planet uh, became largely aware of this medicine. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a way up for we can reclaim just to finish that part of like, it's a part of the identity that I think could be reclaimed uh, across this, these few continents that I think had been kind of pushed away. Yeah. And what is your what is your experience in working with uh, within the tradition and, and, and going down there for the field work of mm-hmm. how that community is carrying the medicine forward into the world? And mm-hmm. um, and, and, and is there how, how do I say this? They have every reason to not want to help us Westerners. Yeah. So how do they feel about our interest? When I was there, they were delighted, um, which was a really nice just response. Uh, when Marie Sabina had been doing this work, and as I kind of share in the book, and Michael Pollan, I think, maybe touches on it a bit, too. By the late 1960s and early 70s, there was a huge wave of, you know, we can call them just hippies, but also just thrill seekers that went down there to um, Huatla de Jimenez, the main area of the Mazatecs, and destroyed the town pretty much. Um, at any moment, there'd be 70 to 80 just pilgrimage people from across the world just camped out. And some of them were very respectful, but some of them were there for a high. And the, the community got so upset, they ended up burning down Maria Sabina's house because they kind of shared this medicine with the rest of the world and it kind of invited the rest of the world in and they thought their, their culture was going to be destroyed. So we have, you know, three to four decades now after that. So Maria Sabina, whose house was burnt down, uh, Nash has a national holiday in that area. Um, they celebrate her birthday and hundreds of people come out and give her a parade. And now she's almost reached the status of a saint there. So as soon as you enter the city town, there's a 12 foot statue of Maria Sabina standing on top of a mushroom, right? So they've really come to see this very differently. And if you go into the city center, there's 12 large mushroom murals and the cop cars have little mushrooms on them. And they've really kind of embraced this outwardly as a part of their culture. And they get very happy when people come now because there's, it's nothing like before. Uh, while I was there, I saw, aside from our group, just one other Westerner, and we're all coming to learn. Like the he, that person came to help people and stay at their house for a few months and clean and take care of things. And see, I came down with a teacher that's had a relationship with them for 30 years, and she comes down all the time, and she knows lots of the locals, and we come in sweet with a local family. And so we're coming in very well like integrated, and everybody seems kind of happy to see us. You know, like they, it's more of a pride. They get to share their culture. Uh, but I think that's partly because the population has been not, not that many people are going and they're kind of on their own little bubble. Mm-hmm. And what were the lessons that were most potent to you in working with them? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. You know, what, what comes to me was the start contrast in uh paradigms um understandably so you know in western history we've gotten a lot of science a lot of psychology we have all these theories so i came with a quite you know well-developed view of how we heal and how we evolve um and i think that's something we can offer them while for them it's a very much uh and for me too but deeply kind of spiritual kind of context and it's more animistic which i think it's we need to integrate that the world is deeply alive and so on um and the way they would take care of trauma, right? It's, it's like we are like, hey, if there's something in your system and there's a trauma, for them, it's a, a bad spirit that's in your body, right? So singing and, and kind of bringing out different say, kind of potions or kind of blowing smoke on you. Um, it really stood out how big it was also within the Christian context. Again, like you're opening up every ceremony, praying to the Mother Mary, um, 
uh, something else that kind of stood out is there's a deep sense that felt more of equilibrium within that culture. Again, more peaceful. There's just smaller people, the more kind, more sustainable. It seems more, I don't know. They're, they're just, they found a sense of equilibrium within their society and the environment. There, there wasn't any sense here, like just big um, insight other than I felt honored to be a part in pretending in a culture that they see themselves going back to the Mayans, that they've survived doing this, uh, for 2000 years and in a very healthy way like we have all these fears of drugs becoming legal in our society of things being thrown off balance of people getting addicted we just have a lot of fear of just legalization and now we have a, a really good model where this has been legal the entire time and it's very healthy and they're doing very well so i think we can look at them for, as, a, as a prime model for that yeah i i really appreciate the extent to which you're bringing in a uh, a variety of models and, and really advocating for a, a, an almost well maybe i'm projecting here but i feel like there's there's an advocacy for a political animism that's mm-hmm. coming through in 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 the work that you're describing this um this systems logic that allows us to interpret everything as having agency yeah deeply i think for me, that was one of the biggest things that have happened is realizing that everything is consciousness and alive. And um, it, it's an, a priceless structure that internally and externally we're connected at all time as part of a larger system. It heals that sense of belonging, um, of power, you know, of care. For me, it's God. I was atheist until I took mushrooms, you know. So there's this deep sense of my entire deep internal world is a part of a large, as Jung would say, collective unconscious, but that collective unconscious seems very conscious. So we're participating in this reality internally and externally all the time. And I think it's hard to understand psychedelics without that perspective. And it's a perspective they still foster. You know, when you take a psychedelic substance as a decent dose, like psilocybin, everything starts to breathe. There's all these synchronicities, the line between an outer dissolves and you realize just how interdependent even our thoughts and our feelings are with the, the whole environment. And so I think it, it fosters this experience of animism. But once you start living that way regularly, it's, it becomes this very like enchanted reality. It's, it's like a, this kind of magical experience that you're involved in on a day-to-day basis, which is a lot better than the depressing, reductionistic, isolated kind of worldview that kind of leads to existential anxiety, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And, and you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a party and somebody I was speaking to there said, capitalism is moving us down Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we're, we're being made to expect that we don't even have the right to live. And there's two passages from your book that I'm, I'm going to read that, that um, came up for me when I was thinking about that observation. One is um, our modern culture, the most meat heavy in history with the belief that humans are naturally monogamous, even in the face of rising, rising divorce rates and promiscuity, perhaps feels threatened because these ideas challenge the status quo and the security of the identity of what it is to be human. And then a couple of pages later, you write, what in the brain has likely been strengthened is the default mode network associated with an overdeveloped self-conscious attention on oneself, which has increased the sense of depression and anxiety in our society and repressed our creativity and sexual energy. So here you you really seem to be advocating for a sense of connection to get us you know back up that hierarchy of needs and towards a, a sense of interconnection. This seems very potent to me in a week where we're powerlessly protesting children being murdered in schools. Mm-hmm. How do we take these desires for wholeness? How do we take these modalities for 
wholeness and move it out of what is, you know, generally a pretty privileged community of people that are able to have access to this medicine uh, into a more constructive uh, social point of view that allows us to reconnect with each other and create safety for each other? No, I think it's a great question. You know, I think what a lot of us are doing is just to bring around more awareness around psychedelics and education. Um, the means to solve, I think, most of our world's problems from hunger and climate change and what's going around with guns, the means are there. We're just not choosing them. You know, we can create whatever kind of technologies we want. So what needs to change is values and worldviews. You know, the, the personal transformation has to happen within individuals to start making different choices. And that's a very slow process to transform. Ken Wilber is one of my favorite philosophers, done a lot of work on how people develop and evolve through paradigms. And with strict meditation, you can move like two paradigms in five years. It's a very slow process, but people aren't generally going to have a strict meditation practice, right? But psychedelics can do it almost overnight. It's not a guarantee, but there's a deep possibility is you know, as what the research has shown, about 65% of people in the right set and setting have a mystical experience. Mystical experience meaning understanding our deep kind of unity and interconnection and a deep sense of love, right? So those people that have that experience are probably not going to start choosing to have more guns in this country. They're not going to choose for this capitalist system that leads most people in poverty. So 70% of the world's in poverty right now. I think something about 30, 40% of this country. Um, capitalism focused on the personal gain of individuals at the expense of others. That That's going to keep creating more of a distance so i ended up writing 20 pages on on uh, economics in the book because it's the largest system that's i think holding us back and it's a system that can evolve just like everything else but there's a lot of power in that, in that position right now money's created out of debt there's three times more debt than there is money in the world right and that's going to keep increasing that creates a tremendous amount of stress there's a lot of people that are going to keep fighting really really hard just to prove their existence in, in terms of house and rent while other people if you have a lot of money it just creates a lot of money in its own just by interest you know so so we need to move towards another system that isn't based on uh creating more debt and is more focused on the deep interconnection not on this kind of value that I'm here just for personal gain. You know, that only goes so far if it leaves everybody else destroyed and creates unsafety in our world. And so to circle back to like, well, how do we create this change? Psychedelics give me tremendous hope because I know nothing that can have almost years of therapy in one day. It really kind of catapult the transformative process. Um, And so and, and it's becoming so widespread where people either microdosing or just having one experience, they can become a new person and go kind of through a death rebirth process and make different decisions. Um, I haven't seen anything else that has worked, right? All the teaching, all the education, all the transformative stuff, it's so slow. And I think we're coming to a point because there's so much suffering, we need things to move quicker. And in the right set and setting, this does that. And, you know, I, I agree with you. I also am concerned about those of us that are psychedelic um, having a lot of self-reinforcing confirmation bias and that communities that would benefit from the, the therapeutic lessons you're describing being intrinsically put off because we are more liberal, generally speaking, mm-hmm. um, or because we, you know, we, we have different, different societal values. So beyond, you know, the, 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 the map studies taking this medicine into uh, military communities, um, what are some of the things that we need to be doing to be more inclusive in our messaging to invite more people into this healing? I really love that, you know, that perspective. Um, a book, 
it might be the next book or I've been playing around with it for a few years is uh, the title is going to be how psychedelics saved my family, you know, uh, working with parents and, and so on. I think we need to contextualize psychedelics as wholesome and that they promote, I would say, just family values. What they do many times is heal relationships within ourselves, with each other, within the community. And so I think we can speak to a lot of deep conservative values because a lot of us turn to be just far more on the liberal end. Conservative values being taking care of the people around us in terms in a very kind of warmth oriented way and also creating a sense of safety. Right. And so I think we, that safely happens again when we're not scared of the other. You know, it's easy to be in a group and be scared of other you know, ethnic groups and so on. But once you kind of have this deep sense of connection of we're all the same, that kind of just really heals. Um, everybody's in pain. And so in terms of it doesn't matter what political side you're on, there's there's pain all around. This really helps with that. And so as Michael Pollan notes, when he first released his book, How to Change Your Mind, he thought he was going to meet all this oppositions uh, from political sides and including from psychiatrists. And he's like, I was really surprised to find I had found no opposition. I think Texas itself is doing um, state-funded research into psilocybin right now. And so everybody is on this board. Everybody wants to make it happen, uh, including very conservative people, because it heals deep pain. And and I think you can speak to all of us. Um, I think all they're needing is just more uh, just awareness around it, that this exists. We're changing the, the stigma around it. You know, I think legalization is going to be a huge thing. There's a huge amount of people that won't do something just because it's illegal. And a lot of the people that come to the work in Jamaica, it's not, it's not that they couldn't find something around them, too. They just, they just really want to be clean and buy the book, right? And that's, that's, that's fine. That's like maybe 50% of the population is like that. So once we move, the, well, like we saw with marijuana, there's a lot of people that would never touch it once it's legal. Then grandparents are doing it, and it's, it's everywhere. And this is going to be happening too with psilocybin mushrooms. Once we get this public kind of conventional morality of this is okay and approved by the larger us, I, I think then from then on it's, it's very people to um, then we need to just focus on access and education because people are going to be looking for it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And what kinds of emotional labor do you think that, uh, that, that psychedelic people can be doing to reach outside mm-hmm. of their their peer group in their community to, if not turn people on to psychedelics, at least take some of the softening lessons that we've learned from psychedelics out to mend some of the rifts that we're dealing with? Yeah, I think it's a beautiful question. And I think the answer to this is it would be the same for any kind of community confronting or engaging in anybody with, with other humans. And that would be at this moment to lessen judgment um easier said than done uh on my website it's psychedelicevolution.org i opened up the site with a quote from krishnamurti he was a kind of meditation teacher up in the 60s and 70s and he said non-judgment is the highest form of intelligence which goes to show how how hard that can be but um judgment by itself creates division it says something is good or bad and judging internally even to ourselves or others creates shame and it creates separation um it either is i'm better than you or i'm worse than you and it immediately kills connection again within ourselves or other people so a lot of people coming with depression is just that they're very strong judgment towards themselves other people that have a hard time getting along with others have a lot of judgment towards others right and people can unconsciously sense when they're being judged and they're also scared of it you know of, of being rejected they're scared of being vulnerable and open to new ideas because of judgment judgment so if you create the sense of safety again by working and weeding out judgment in yourself period uh you will be a happier person and it'd be easier to connect with with other people that's a that's a really great uh great response thank you for that um 
one of the things that I want to highlight before we move into the, the general Q&A is that there's so many fundamental assumptions that you're challenging very gently in this book, which I really appreciate. There's um, a section where you're talking about ADHD and you move into this discussion that neurodiversity is a feature, not a bug in, in human evolution. Uh, the, I'm just going to read a short passage and I'd like you to, to kind of talk about the, that, set, that idea. But you say, mm-hmm. the term cognitive disorder is highly misleading, however, as this mutation has brought about many evolutionary advantages, including character traits that well-served hunter and gatherer societies, but often prove difficult for individuals in modern society as do most types of neurodivergence or neurological patterning different from that of the average human. Now, we're living in a period where, you know, you and I, we were that, that kind of vanguard generation that when we were hyper in school, they gave us drugs. Mm-hmm. And uh, this kind of set a tone about neurodiversity that is really starting to come to roost right now. So to what extent is the neurodiversity that we're experiencing right now and the the rates of maladaptation that people are coming to psychedelics for healing, uh, to, to what extent is this actually a healing feature that, mm-hmm. that should be integrated rather than a bug that needs to be suppressed in your view? I think it's largely a healing feature. Uh, it's not that there's not difficulties with it. I think it's a part of our system and our species, consciously and unconsciously, rejecting the system that we're in. The, the system that is in some ways enslaving people creating we're rising depression rates more than any other time increasing anxiety you know whether it's housing's hard to find or food or increasing poverty um we can see what's happened in the political landscape there's a lot of things that i'm like hey the, the machine that we're in isn't working right it's destroying the environment and kind of threatening life on the planet i mean so there's a lot of things that need to shift and i think there's a deep species intelligence that's all of a sudden kind of wakes up and let's say just rejects but also creates more internal individuality that's just like hey i'm a unique person that just doesn't need to follow the script um for myself i I was diagnosed with add at age 15 um i took medicine for a few years adderall then didn't take it seriously for a while i'm like this is all made up i'm like it was part of that machine part of the system i'm pushing this away and about four or five years ago i took uh 500 micrograms of lsd like a pretty good trip and halfway through i started thinking about add and i was like is this real i don't know why it came up to me but in the trip it started to emerge and so i took out a computer started doing a lot of research um, while I took a lot of tests and I'm like, nope, I have ADD and it kept driving deeper into the research and saw that they've isolated the gene of ADD. So it's genetic component, and it leads to a neurodivergence, meaning a different brain patterning. So it's a, it's physiological. I thought it was just something we constructed. And there's many of different different neurodivergence uh, kind of characteristics. And it was easy to see how a lot of the things that I had felt were my strengths came from this. Um, ability to hyper focus in areas that I'm deeply interested in. And I get, once I get into something, I get really into something in research a lot. Um, a lot of my drive, a lot of my energy. So there's so many positives, but a lot of certain difficulties. Um, for example, with certain details, like I have, I, I can write a lot and write very easily, uh, but I'm not good at editing. I can read something 15 to 20 times and miss typos. So there's a tension deficit where I understand the wholeness of the idea of what's going on, but the little like symbols I miss. And so I've learned where the weaknesses are in terms of like, I need to hire an editor. 
And so the idea with ADD and so on, uh, the, the research showed that it's been part of the human lineage at least 10,000 years, if not more, because these are the people that inspired creativity, perhaps promoted migration for people to get moving forward, that they became restlessness and there's this drive for novelty and change. So part of what ADD is, is there's, the brain's not making enough dopamine. It needs a little bit of excitement. And so you give people stimulants and they can focus more. It brings them the excitement. But another way to hack this is by continual learning. You need change. Again, what kind of McKenna, Terrence McKenna said, the big poles of the universe are habits and novelty, a sense of newness. So I think these are evolutionary factors that promote acceleration of growth if done right. And so for somebody that has ADD, part of the thing is not to keep working within the system, but to find something you really like and then get really good at it. And then that can be your gift that you can give to everybody else. And how do those that don't have a, a neurodivergence uh, in, in their makeup integrate their, uh, their lives with people that do uh, mm-hmm. in, in a more harmonious way? What, what, what can we, how can we work with each other and bring out each other's strengths in your view? Yeah, I think it's a beautiful question. So the perspective I'm coming from is, is from, a, say, a Gaian system, the idea that the earth is a large interconnected organism, this is the idea put forward by James Lovelock. It's really put out in the book. I think Terrence McKenna, and the, the psychedelic itself kind of gives this expression that we're a deep interconnected system that has some level of consciousness and so on. And I think a good metaphor for that is our body. And the body creates different organs to do different jobs, you know, a stomach, a heart, a lungs. I mean, each cell has their own specific thing what they're supposed to do and even though it's compartmentalized what they're supposed to be doing they work in unison to create this large body i think the earth itself perhaps births humans to do different things right so not everybody's meant to be we're all artists but some people are here to devote their life to art some people to writing some people to engineering some people to politics some people for systemic change while some other people are here to work on one-on-one therapy so we're all born i feel with a specific impulse to do something Right. It's something. And I think it's very internal in terms of like this feels right and has a deep sense of purpose and excitement to my system. And I'd encourage you to follow that. Right. Regardless of what neurotype you are. And so the neurodivergent types might just have a a type that is like I need to break out of the conventional molds, go do this thing over here. But we also need a conventional society. We need need to keep some level of the structure going. Again, the the idea of as McKenna said is this tension between habits and novelty. We need to create some habits because we need stability. So regardless of what it is, it's to really kind of I'd say open your heart's a big part. If your heart's closed, you're not seeing clearly. Right. That's where we feel our deep sense of unity and our connection with others. What I learned through the mushroom is love's the most important thing, followed by learning. Everything else is so not important to these two values. So I think as long as people's hearts are open and they're following it forward as a compass, they're going to end up where they're going to and they can have deeper relationships with whoever they're around. I love that. If your heart is closed, you're not seeing clearly. That's a really yeah. terrific observation. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and speaking of open-heartedness, one of the elements of both of your book and of your ongoing practice is to introduce a, a new framework for thinking about sexuality. I, I saw you give a uh, presentation with the San Francisco Psychedelic Society with Ariel Brown on psychedelics and sexuality. And in the book as well, you're talking about uh, a more expansive view of sexuality. So to what extent are is is the increase of interest in psychedelics um, helping us process this increase of visibility, understanding, and empathy with uh, with, with the expansion of, of sexual diversity that's going on right now? Yeah, I think it's a core part of who we are. 
you know, a little bit of background. You know, there's a lot of stuff that came up around sexuality in the psychedelic area after some articles came out against some of the teachers I worked with. Uh, I think it was last November. And so I released an, an article a month ago on Lucid News uh, about how to hold sexual boundaries and sexual energy and psychedelic psychotherapy. So th- that article is out there. You can see some of the perspectives. Um, aside, some of my background I was also studying Tantra and a teacher I really loved was David Data. And in Tantra cosmology, the whole universe breaks down into these forces, masculine, feminine, in, in terms of, of there's a, the one God and it kind of breaks down to these two beings and everything is a creation between these two archetypes, right? And from that perspective, everything is sex. Like everything, that's, what, that's the creative energy that creates everything in existence. And we can follow it down the evolutionary line of all animals. Every animal including us that's ever existed, came through life through sex. Sexual energy creates your body, right? You know, uh, Sigmund Freud puts the libido as, as a really kind of ground part of our, our psychic structure. And I don't think there's, that's the complete picture, but it's that important part of us. And I think it's an important deep soul quality. And for somebody to feel a deep sense of wholeness, they need to feel their sexual vitality and energy. And so as Stan Groff said, these are holotropic states, states that organically move towards wholeness, including bringing up whatever's repressed. Sex comes up a lot in psychedelics, especially in deeper doses and in this level of therapy. A person can come in for something completely else, but their life force, including sexuality, will suddenly come up really strong in the journeys. Um, It leads to more confidence, vitality, connection, creativity, ease. I mean, there's a lot of important things once it's um, kind of integrated in your system. And with that also comes with a sense of power, you need more responsibility. Again, boundaries become very, very important in this. But I think us owning that energy um, is, is very important and necessary because it'll leak. It's, it's a need. And Maslow puts it at the bottom of the hierarchy. It's like trying to repress your hunger. And so if you repress that, it leaks out in, in, in ways that aren't healthy for anybody, including doing harm to others. And so I was trying to also increase, I think, the awareness, uh, because these are two taboo subjects, drugs and sex, and uh, give people enough drugs, including alcohol, all of a sudden their inhibitions come out and sexual stuff comes up. And so I thought there was needed to be more awareness before the relationships, and especially before um, we move towards widespread legality, because I don't think we've kind of included that in the thinking as we start giving everybody in psychedelics there's going to be more sexual arousal that happens and we have to be ready to hold that space very well in a way that's not shaming the person and encouraging growth and healing, but also that we're aware of our own sexuality and keeping the boundaries very strong. And finally, uh, Lorenzo wouldn't, uh, wouldn't forgive me if I didn't talk about your interest in blockchain and uh, its, its relationship with psychedelics. And you talk a bit about how blockchain is a, an elegant solution for managing the the psychedelic supply chain which you know tracks for me except for government surveillance uh but i think um you know there's there's a lot more in there about blockchain and ubi and blockchain with regard to its promise for creating a um, a more systems bound future so i'm wondering if you can comment on your view of economics that you proposed in this book and ways that uh, there are 21st century solutions to reinventing ourselves to approach the 22nd century. No, beautiful. Thanks for bringing the topic. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, I've, I've been somebody that's, as I decided at 18, I'm not going to, I'd rather not live. I'm just not following my interests very deeply. And um, in 2017, I came across blockchain and something happened where really it was the, 
only other big thing other than psychedelics that really kind of hijacked my system. I felt this just innate drive to like really understand it. And I spent over a thousand hours in 2017, just doing a lot of research on blockchain. And it was just such a sophisticated and beautiful system in terms of just systems thinking. There's, I think, a deep evolution that happened. And the idea that we have this as a technology, I think, can really catapult us forward in many ways. It's Paul Samets and a lot of people that, you know, have been in the psychedelic space for a while point out that as you keep taking them, you start to really care about the world. They start to dissolve our boundaries between us and everything and a deep sense of empathy and care, including for the future of humanity comes up. And as I've mentioned, the economics, I think, is the biggest roadblock that's affecting everything, including from animal factory farming, destroying the ecology, um, suppression of across, um, you know, classes i mean war itself is largely economic you see what's going on with ukraine and russia right now and so that system as i mentioned is, is largely created out of debt it's a, blockchain offers something that money's created almost rhythmically so if i, I take bitcoin for an example every 10 minutes 6.25 bitcoins created it's not based on debt it's an open source protocol anybody can see. So I think it also can incur, brings forward a, a value system like psychedelics where there's a sense of transparency, right? Everybody can see the code. Um, right now, money's created not only out of debt, but private individuals like the banks and then also the Federal Reserve, right? Here, it's, it's, it's a very democratic. It kind of brings everybody to the same power. Um, everybody has uh, some say in how the system moves forward. And again, what's assist, uh, psychedelics kind of promote the sense of unity, right? Where the my identity is no longer just based on a country, but I'm a global citizen. Um, I think cryptocurrencies also like Bitcoin and so on kind of promote that because it's, it, there are a global economic language. It's no longer secluded by borders. We kind of have this certain point of reference now of value um, that isn't based on any one group or language or country. Um, I think it can really break forward the stalemate in many ways. Um, as you've mentioned, I think it can also help us bring universal basic income as, as care develops. I think there's this impulse to help the people that are most vulnerable around us. And so giving a standard wage of living um, just because you're human and part of a citizen, you know, like here's a thousand dollars a month because you deserve to live. Um, it's something that we can do. We have the resources for this. We just, we're, we don't have, we're not, we don't have the value system that most people can vote for this, but the technology starts making that to make very, uh, a lot more easier. Um, and it also creates a deep sense of a, once something's in the blockchain, it's virtually unhackable. So it creates a sense of a deep trust because there's a historical record. For example, for anything to change in the blockchain, you need to hack 51% of the whole system, which is virtually impossible. Um, so it creates a deeper sense of trust for any kind of contracts or anything moving forward. Um, it, so overall, I think it just creates a new platform in, in where we've had a stalemate. And I think those background changes can create dramatic shifts in our society across the world. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of dramatic shifts, uh, enough, enough from me. Let's hear uh, from a any questions or comments from others. Go ahead, Rio. Uh, I want to ask, thank you very much. I'm enjoying your book tremendously. Oh, good. Thank you. Appreciate, especially you're covering the field historically and in uh, the new material. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One of the things that uh, you address is the power of single dose experiences with psilocybin. And there seems to be some data that shows that these can be transformative in the long term. But in my own observation and with others, 
it seems like that is limited and potentially there is a good balance to be had between a single dose and some of those to be strong, others are not as strong. And so that's a point you might address. And the uh, new application of microdosing to extend those effects. Um, so maybe you could address that concept there. I love that. Yeah. I was running a group until very recently at the SF Psychedelic Society called uh, Developing a Relationship with Sacred Mushrooms. And I want to put forward, I think, the correct or I think better just orientation towards these medicines is, is, is developing a relationship. And so it's part of just making a book. It's like the arguments have to be very linear and so on. Um, and there's a lot There's a dissertation. There's a lot I wanted to say that I, I really kind of was restricted. And so I see our relationship to these really lifelong. Um, I think one mushroom trip, a single dose can do a lot for individuals. I've seen it do a lot for individuals. And at 18, if I just had that one journey, it would have transformed my life completely still. Uh, but there are almost, as indigenous see the, tradition see them, they see them as teachers. You don't just show up to class once. You keep showing up to the class. Um, and so journeying three times a year is pretty good. Once a year, I think on the more minimal end is fine. You know, again, like you can only do one, do one. But especially with psilocybin because it's different almost every time i think it could be continually transformative for the rest of your life uh and i think microdosing is a good way to keep building that relationship on a regular basis so even though i mean i've taken i've probably had 400 different journeys of, of substances altogether, um and so i don't take i take a few big journeys a year right now but i found that i'm still thinking about mushrooms all the time because that relationship's always ongoing so i'm thinking about them and they're a part of my life whether i'm taking them or not uh i think about their insights nonstop, um and i think microdosing is a way for people especially in the beginning to just keep building a sense of communion with them i hope i'm does that answer your question adequately or would you like to ask it again in a different way? No, it certainly addresses uh, the question. One detail there. Yeah. When you do do a single dose, do you think that there is a certain threshold in terms of dose mm. that is important to hit to have yeah. some transformative effect? Yeah. I wish we could make it that concrete. What I've seen, I've, I've seen at least, I mean, many hundreds of journeys of people undergoing and it's things happened almost differently at different times. Um, I wish it was more dose dependence, you know, so I tend to work within the four to six gram range with, with people. Um, and for a lot of people, it can be very breaking through a lot. Some people need 10 grams, right? So it's very particular to that psyche. And then in that moment, there's times in my life where I've taken really high doses, but two hits of LSD went a lot further. So I think at, is it appropriate for this person at this moment in their life to have this huge transformative experience, right? And so you can give them any amount of medicine, but I think there's a deeper intelligence that they may not break through at that moment because it's not right for them. They could be going through a divorce or they could be feeling unstable. I mean, that can make them more kind of just out of whack. Um, what I can see, or it was probably more right is again, seeing it as ongoing because people don't break through. And I don't even know if that should be the main thing we're focusing on, but kind of dissolve completely into say it of like oneness and realization that first time doesn't mean they should stop. I think the focus should be more on growth. Are we taking any amount and does that offer growth continually? If I could switch uh, and ask one, one other thing right now, uh, you go into kind of a, uh, explanation and exploration of the whole long concept yeah and 
it seems to me that what's being trying to be driven to there is an, an explanation or a way of understanding or perception of uh, maybe even participation with certain aspects of the uh, higher consciousness states. Um, maybe you can address that. And if you've had any experience with it and how useful you find that concept. Yeah. Now, I came across that concept at 18, right? So I've had 20 years with it and I found it indispensable. Like it, it's a, I, I clung to it quickly and I've loved it a lot. And the idea is a whole on uh, put forward first by Arthur Kessler and then popularized by Ken Wilber is the idea that everything's a whole and a part at the same time. And that we needed this kind of concept because it's a genuine need to understand things in this kind of way. The same way like atoms are both particles and waves at the same time, everything is always a whole and a part of something else. So atoms are whole at the same time, they come together to form molecules and molecules come together to form cells and cells. We have like something like 37 trillion cells in our body. They're each whole, they're each individual organisms, but they come together to create a larger whole. And that this is the systemic just, just structure of evolution. This is how evolution moves forward. And the idea is also then that evolution doesn't just end here it's the same way a cell only knows so much but it's a part of a larger body and network that's also part true for us and the next larger system we could say is guy or the planet it's a very large interconnected biosphere as we're seeing with um climate change you know it's, it's gases and things happening at certain parts of the earth affect everything else so the idea is also that there's a deeper wholeness that we're a part of my most transformative experiences have been breaking through into the, you could say that larger whole on um, whether it's a planet or God or the universe that uh, contact with a larger intelligence that seems to know a lot about our history and is also a part of us. It's not this deep separate thing, the same way my heartbeats felt in every cell in my body, right? When you kind of have this level of contact, it's, this is a deep part of you. It creates you, the body creates each cell, right? The, this earth, this universe created me um there isn't a day that goes by that i don't sit there and think about it that's a, that's a level of impact it's had in my system and i think can reorient us differently if we start to treat this earth as a, a living organism uh it all becomes more sacred it becomes more important you're building a relationship with it instead of seeing it as an inanimate thing and then we start to realize that we're all part of the system there's more of like you could say like a brotherhood or sisterhood or kind of family kind of feeling that evolves as we kind of realize we're part of this larger body so i, I found it deeply impactful Let's uh, let, let's make space for Ian to get in. Okay, I wanted to, uh, Charles, if I could just follow one thing on that briefly, because I do want to get Ian in. Okay, uh, and looking forward to Ian, of course. Um, is you've done a very good way of presenting that, and I see it as a way to verbalize, put into some structure, experiences that one has, mm-hmm. um, and in a way bringing back those insights, experiences. And perhaps this isn't the goal of this concept uh, or explanation, but it seems to me that what's being uh, attempted there, and maybe so maybe I'm seeing it not as it's being meant to be used, is the relationship of that to an organic experience in a state of higher consciousness itself I'm talking about. Yeah, I think I'm following you that the idea I put on there is that because we're part of this whole on, we can have the experience of a larger whole on. 
And uh, as far as it being organic, I think there's very, very many methods to um, have that experience. Psychedelics, I think, for, are the most quickest and useful and efficient. Meditation is one. Sex is one. Drumming is one. And holotropic breathwork, where that sense of self dissolves and is inherently part of our larger self. And then we get in contact with that. So it's also not a very different you know, vision than the Hindus have with Ahman and Brahman, that we're part of this very large dream with called Atman and uh, Brahman. And within it, there's a sense of self, Atman, who is this larger self. And so it's, it's the idea of uh, parts within larger just wholes. Um, and I think it's just been a part of uh, our thinking all the time. It's just we're kind of clearly making the concept that everything's a part of the larger whole. Uh, I hope I'm answering your question correctly, but that's part of the argument that this is a structure of evolution. So we can see ourselves as parts, but always belonging to a larger whole, always. So I think that kind of heals our sense of um, belonging and fragmentation, once we realize we're organically always a part of a larger whole. And then that this, there's this psychic reality towards it. I'm having this internal subjective experience, but there's a subjective experience to this larger whole that we can actually gain entrance through. Ian, please. Hi there, Jahan, and thank you so much for being here. It's been absolutely wonderful and informative, and also a, not a tip of the cap to Charles, who's kept it going and asked some really excellent questions. Right. Um, I want to take it all the way back to McKenna's stoned ape theory yeah. and whether or not, since you've been fascinated by it for so long, whether there's been any solid evidence, more evidence for you to present other than the intuitive sense of it feels right. Yeah, um, totally. I've heard people push back on it by saying, well, uh, you look at the, the advent of, of early technologies like fire that enabled us to cook meat, which, which in turn was uh, the protein, you know, gave us protein to, to um, uh, increase the size and complexity of our, of our brains, which it's basically fossils. It's hard to fossilize a fungus. So what, what do you have? What's yeah, totally, totally. the Yeah, yeah, totally. totally. I think there's been a lot of good research that's happened over the last 20 years that um, McKenna's book, I think, came out in 1992, 1993, Food of the Gods. We've had about 30 years since then. And and I think some there's been some strong science. The most grounded by far is that we found out in the last 10 years that psilocybin stimulates neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. The brain physically begins to grow. There aren't that many substances on the planet that do that. You know, in, in the 1990s, we thought brain growth just stopped at a certain age, but now we know it can be stimulated. So aside from the formation of new neurons, it also increases what's known as spinogenesis, the re-enlivening of dendrites that had atrophied or died. Um, and so what depression looks like is generally uh, dendrites become atrophied. Dendrites are the parts of the neurons that talk together. And so the whole brain starts to become isolated and parsed. This hyperconnects the brain. I recommend people seeing uh, just Googling MRI and psilocybin. And the, there's great images of psilocybin, people under psilocybin brain scans um, versus a placebo. I mean, the complete differences. And so we know now it quiets what's known as a default mode network. The ego center is part of the self. When it's I, 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 me, 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 there's a specific network that lights up. And that network asks almost as a repressive function for the rest of the brain. So when that loud voice quiets down, it gives room for all the other voices. So the brain hyperconnects, um, creates a state of neuroplasticity where it can rewire. And many of those pathways stay with us. So we know that just in the last 10 years and the idea that this was available for our ancestors and they did it millions of times over millions of years. As Paul Samets notes, it's the most common mushroom in the Africa savanna where he evolved. And we were, we came down from the canopies of the trees about 5 million years ago. 
we were there for about 4 million years. It's the most common mushroom. We're largely kind of more vegetarian, but we followed also cattle and mushrooms grows on, uh, you know, coprophilic goes on uh, the dung of cattle. So we'd have been constantly, you know, in the footsteps as we looked for new sources of food. So the idea is we started with microdosing, just eating it when we found it, eventually moves to rituals. So aside from the hyper-connected brain states that we know it exists now, we also know now, you know, the research has continued to show 65% of people in the right setting setting have a mystical experience. So now it also leads to the formation of religion because people are having mystical experiences millions of years ago. Uh, as McKenna notes, it was probably also the formation of language. And again, it creates psychedelic state of synesthesia where our senses begins kind of conflating to one another. So sound can all of a sudden conflate with meaning and images, giving also birth to um, you know, the alphabet system. There's also good work done by David Lewis Williams. He's a cognitive archaeologist, did a lot of work in the 80s and 90s, uh, internationally renowned, wrote lots of books on archaeology, um, specifically cave painting. You know, and so he deduced after, I don't know, decades, like maybe six decades of work that the formation of art, because cave art was the first formation of arts, was actually catalyzed likely by psychedelics. He, he would say expanded states of consciousness in general, but he strongly puts the psychedelics. But he also puts breathing and drumming. Um, the difference here is psychedelics are very easy to, to kind of use. You just eat something, right? While aside from something like meditation or holotropic breath work, where you have to sit there for like an hour in a very focused, steady state, right? That takes a lot more focus. It's easier just to eat something. So caves would have added a lot of uh, benefits to our kind of early shamanic uh, ancestors, including a sense of safety. There's one entrance, right? So they can be in this vulnerable state uh, and with somebody just taking care of the entrance and a state of darkness. And so you can go there at any time. It, it kind of keeps you safe from weather and predators, but also it's a great space to project your visions onto. And then the formation of art simply came from tracing those images that you were having these psychedelic states onto the walls, right? So it's a quick, easy explanation from art. Um, but because it creates a hyper-connected brain state and stimulates creativity, as I just shared, it might have led to the creation of tools itself. The idea for us to terraform the environment, right? So the two main theories right now in evolution, I think they fall short, is it was tools that changed our consciousness, tools changed the environment and that changed us. And the idea that we started using fire and created an external stomach um, and that free calories in our system that went to brain growth, right? So we have more calories than ever before available readily, you know, especially in the last hundred years that has not led to any brain development. So it wasn't that we had a restriction of calories and all of a sudden that those calories are free to lead to brain growth. That's like one of the main theories right now of evolution. And we have more tools than ever before. I mean, at accelerating rate, our technology is increasing. And it seems like since the agricultural revolution, our brain size has gone down about 5%. Right. So that's a massive shift. So the idea is that we stopped eating something in our diet that was actually forming brain growth over since the agricultural revolution. As Yuval Noir Harari points out in his book, Sapiens, um, mushrooms are too elusive to integrate into the agricultural revolution. They grow from spores. They're microscopic. Right. So they're not seeds like we can tangibly see the turn of plants and trees. It wasn't until Terrence McKenna's and Dennis McKenna's book in the 1970s, um, the Magic Mushroom Growers Guide, that we even knew how to grow psilocybin mushrooms. They were the first to kind of cultivate a method and share it with people. So it's a fairly new technology in that sense for us to integrate in our culture. So once we start putting these pieces together, it's not that there weren't other things like tools or fire that influenced us. It was that the creative spark to even do those things came from this hyper-connected brain state that psilocybin offered. Great. That's fantastic uh, summary of the stone yeah. ape theory yeah. um, and, and where it's headed. I, I uh, sort of off the, um, not quite a follow-up, but a separate topic. Are there people that you, 
we, we talk a lot about how, you know, psychedelics aren't for everyone. Are there people that you turn away and why? I have to um, turn away, but I, that doesn't mean they don't deserve help. Um, for example, I scan out borderline and schizophrenia um, because I don't have the resources to hold that. Right. And it doesn't mean they don't deserve help. Um, and so I think as we move towards legalization and we have clinics with entire teams that these people can also benefit from these experiences. It's just that because they can be very ungrounded, I don't have a whole team in terms of expertise and also uh, legal support to hold somebody that needs that level of attention. But somebody with a borderline or schizophrenia, if they have, you know, five people on a team and there's a place they can stay for a week, might benefit because, again, it can create a deep sense of wholeness and love and belonging and creativity. Um, so and so I think these are for you believe these. I think that's... they're for everybody, but not at every moment. And so I think the person needs to be at somewhat stable place and to have a good support system. I think it's a birthright that we can all have access to. But again, I think there needs to be a lot of discernment and care uh, about before taking the substance a very quick follow-up what is your protocol for people who are on ssris yeah half the people that come are on ssris right because most people come because they're depression or anxiety um psilocybin itself is fairly safe um I ask people to follow their doctor's recommendation. It's great if they can begin to wean off before their journey. A lot of people can't because then they would be too unstable. A lot of people have been on them for 10, 20 years. Uh, so it's nice to do, even though it's, it's fairly safe across the board, still do some level of comparing what compound it, that they are taking and how it interacts with psilocybin. There's some people like Spirit Doctor. You can go on and ensure like, what's it like to have this combination. Uh, but we still take them. I've seen a lot of people get off of SSRIs with journeys and microdosing. Um, it's not a recommendation. It's not something that we can say, you know, hey, this will be an outcome or promote it because I also need to um, pay attention to their, their, their doctors. Uh, but I've seen a lot of people create enough wholeness. Uh, SSRIs tend to just numb people and doesn't solve the issue. While this tends to get to the root of the problems, whether it's self-esteem or deep trauma. We have to engage. I'm not saying it's easy. A lot of psilocybin experiences are very difficult, but it seems the overall outcome is healing, and a lot of people are able then to let go of the SSRIs. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, in 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 the chat, Carl asks. Uh, Jahan mentioned an author or book who spoke about paradigm change. Can he repeat that source and elaborate on other insights on paradigm change that haven't yet been mentioned? Thank you. Yeah, totally. There's a deep. Interest of mine was worldviews. My master's focused on that. Um, my favorite author in the area is Ken Wilber. He's written about 20 books on uh, integral philosophy and psychology. And the, his work over a course of a lifetime was, it was probably a thousand models, if not at least many hundreds of, of, of development, of human development in the East and the West, from like the chakra system to everything happening in, in psychology and systems theory. And how does evolution occur collectively, but also personally? Um, and his background was just a deep kind of a meditation and spirituality, the idea that there's higher stages of consciousness that are accessible with, with sustained interest. And there's been a lot of developmental psychologists you know, working in, for decades, uh, seeing how even children develop, you know, and how that continues into adulthood. Um, so if you go into Wilbur's work, I mean, one I can point to that focuses on this specifically is integral psychology. Um, in the back, you see just all these maps comparing all, a lot of developmental psychologists and, and thinkers in that area. 
Uh, the idea being that once the self is self sense of self changes, so does one's values and the way they perceive the world. And they've been very well mapped out. So another good um, model is called spiral dynamics. Well, many people have been working on that one for decades, and it's a color-coded system of like eight different levels of paradigm development, um, moving from animistic, you know, all the way to we're a hyper-connected uh, system. And, you know, with capitalism almost being at the middle of that, uh, that's more of a kind of reductionist scientific material approach to reality that focuses on the individual is like stage five. And there's more to that. There's a sensitivity, sensitivity and cultural awareness and more a deeper sense of just knowing that growth exists that comes after that. You know, so it's been very well mapped out. Spiral Dynamics is an easy one to Google and get a lot of information on. Without giving anything away, the way you stuck the landing of the book on that idea and brought it all to a hole with your tool concert, very well done as a writer. Thanks, thanks dog. I appreciate that. Man. <laughs> Anybody else have uh, any questions or comments you want to get in today? Okay. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. I'm, I'm thinking about the particular place that we're at as a culture, as far as like the ingression or re-ingression of psychedelics. Um, and I'm curious how you feel about, there's the, the reality of people having their first psychedelic experience with you. And, and then there's the potential for future sort of experiences. And so do you see first journeys as a distinctly different kind of experience to hold space for than, you know, somebody's 10th, somebody's yeah. 50th? Yeah, so I can tell you what I've seen is uh, maybe 50 to 70% of the people that come in, it's for the first journey. And there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of unknownness. I mean, you're literally just stepping into the unknown. It's something unlike ever you've experienced before. And they want somebody that's gone through there. A lot of people come through referrals. So, you know, I've worked with people they've known. So there's a deep sense of trust that comes in. Um, and my job is to make it to go as smooth as possible. Pretty much just always really does. And so they have that uh, a kind of association that this could be a very positive and good experience anchored in. The second time people come in, it's, it's, it's twice as easy because all that anxiety of the unknown, they've gone through this before. You know, it's like going to, on a first date versus a second. It's like, you know what you're getting into, who this person is, what the setup is like. You know, there's a lot of anxiety the first time you meet somebody. Um, but this is you're not just meeting me. You're meeting a whole new level of your own consciousness. You know, so a lot easier the second time. And what I've seen with people that I've worked with over years, after they've come and done it a few times, they do branch out and start experimenting on their own. Um, with family, with friends, uh, there's more security. They've also transformed a bit. Um, what's good the first few times if you work with somebody is because if there is, and a lot of people know ahead of time, sometimes they don't, that if there's deep underlying trauma, that might all come up, right? And so you want somebody there to take care of it. I mean, I've worked with a few people that had deep sexual childhood trauma that they had no idea about. Right. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, my God. I mean, it's, it's more common than I think we would want to realize. Like I was molested by a family member when I was a child. I had no idea the memories are coming up. But this explains so much of what's happened in my life. Right. That's a big life event for them. And, you know, especially if they're in their 40s, 50s and so on. They're like, fuck. Um, and so there's a lot to unpack and hold a person and walk them through. And we do integrations and so on. But once a lot of the stuff that's been repressed kind of comes up and it feels stable, a lot of people do practice on their own. And then they come back to me for just big journeys. 
you know, we're, we'll work with higher grams and, and just go more intentional. So they go off and do their own stuff, but they do come back to me periodically just for some deep dives. Thanks. Yeah. Anybody else want to uh, get a question in that haven't, we haven't heard from today? Okay, go ahead, Rio. Um, this is one I don't know if you've looked at, but it comes up in the context of uh, psilocybin being uh, quite ubiquitous around the world. And, of course, leads into the stone ape theory that we've discussed. Uh, an area that I've done some work in, but I don't hear it uh, discussed very often, is the datura, mm-hmm. which is also found pretty much uh, in most places of the world. And one, if you've done anything looking at that or the relationship that could exist between datura and uh, psilocybin. Yeah, no, I haven't a whole lot seen. I think uh, Carlos Castaneda's work whenever I was young was one of the first kind of introductions towards it. I've had to, when I went into my dissertation, there's a few years I wanted to focus on all psychedelics, you know, because I play, I think they're, they're all evolutionary. They help change our consciousness and, and they can be very transformative. And after a while, I had to become very clear that it was too wide of a field because uh, I wanted to really cover it very well. And I, I decided on psilocybin, which was limiting and freeing. Uh, the positive was I could pretty much read every book on psilocybin. There wasn't, there wasn't enough I could cover that ground in a few years. But if I open it up to all psychedelics, that's a lifetime of work. And it would be hard to put it into pages. My, my dissertation was like three times longer than it needed to be. So it was, I, for myself and to be able to get something out into the world, I had to limit my scope. And so I did a deep dive into that medicine. Um, that being said, in my personal life, like I, I think they're all amazing. Uh, Detour, you may know more than me, but I think something that helped me back is I know, I believe it can be poisonous and disorienting, right? And so you would have to, again, high level facilitators, very skilled. Uh, it's something I couldn't promote for people to go experiment on their own. So the because of accessibility and degree of harmfulness, it's something that I felt I, I wouldn't be able as to um, promote or educate the public on because I wouldn't want them to go try it. Okay, any other uh, any other questions from people we haven't heard from today? Uh, we have another one in chat. Um, besides inducing an altered state, how do we facilitate paradigm change on an individual level with someone in need? How can we facilitate those breakthroughs in internal motivation, whether they're in an altered state or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The work's ongoing, whether you're on the state or not. So I think getting some good maps on paradigms. You know, Wilbur's work is amazing. I think Spiral Dynamics is another um, because people have been mapping these out for decades based on, you know, where I, I'm bringing in these models because they're basing their research on hundreds of researchers, right? It's not just somebody coming up with a theory on their own. This is like very well structured and networked and graphed out. And there's been communities around these that have really kind of helped refine it. Um, so to understanding a map that how things develop and what is the next stage and understanding all the stages under it. I think a compassionate kind of approach is going to be by far the best. As I mentioned, anytime people feel judgment, they tend to guard, um, protect, or they're scared of feeling rejected. So any kind of value system that something is better than something else, or you're not enough, is going to cause some kind of breakdown. As we keep moving up into paradigms, a part of the structure, and I think it's a part of the structure of our deep reality is that we are love and we are interconnected and so on. So I think it needs to be shared with a person holding that sense of presence already. So a sense that this person is okay, help them feel safe, help them feel loved and encouraged, self, bring their self-esteem up. It's like seeing a, a, a 
plants grow, given enough nutrients and sunlight, it grows very well to become what it's supposed to be, right? And so I think it's the same with humans, given the right conditions, the right set and setting, the right kind of love and attention and the nutrients it needs, people grow to become what they're supposed to. And rushing the process isn't helpful, right? I can't get mad at a seedling for not being a tree. It, it will become one one day. And so I think just, again, being that love and just helping the person wherever they're at is, is the right approach instead of having them have the idea that they're supposed to be something other than what they are. And to, to bring this to a landing um, and to build on what, what you're describing there, a lot of the current psychedelic conversations uh, about medicalization and legalization have a lot to do with individual healing about the mm. individual's uh, anxiety or trauma or depression or, or, or needs that stem from being under-resourced in some way in their life and feeling that, that absence of wholeness that you're describing. Uh, mm-hmm. Now I was speaking to a couple of elders uh, in, in the community who have a lot of experience from the 1960s at the bicycle day a few weeks ago mountain girl and Roni stanley and Roni, of course you know created millions of doses with owsley and they were saying well all of that's well and good but what we need is psychedelics for world peace and there is an element there of how do we move the conversation in your view from these transactional inter- individual interventions that are required to get people to a baseline where they can show up in the collective mm-hmm. to shifting the conversation about psychedelics towards this sense that you articulate in the book that species evolution is collective and these tools are designed to bring us as a collective into the next phase. So how do we move from this individual phase that we're at now to a more collective concept of using psychedelics for our, our species growth? Yeah, thanks. I think it's multi-layered. First, we need enough individuals that can rise to have those conversations. A lot of people, because they're in their wounding, understandably, because it, it can be a hard world to be in, they're not ready to have those conversations until they feel resourced enough and healed enough. And so it's working with individuals also. Um, but my interest has always been on the collective. And I think some of us, it's more inherent that we want larger systemic change. Um, I didn't necessarily mean to be a guide. It, it kind of just really unfolded in that direction very organically, but I wanted to be a professor and kind of have a platform and teach and kind of work on, on, on a larger scale. But I've learned a lot from the guide work on the one-to-one level. Um, people need to feel a part of a larger whole to really care about the whole, you know, so they need to have that sense of usness and kind of collectiveness um, to even, I think, entertain those conversations. Uh, psychedelics themselves can be very vulnerable. You know, again, a lot of times you don't know what's going to come up. So you need some level of people feeling secure enough to have these experiences with other people. Uh, personally, though, like I know there's the medical model and so on, a lot of times one-to-one, and there's the ceremonial indigenous context with some level of group kind of dynamics, but normally based on more indigenous cultures and beliefs. And then there's like a recreational, you know, scene that has given me a lot. You know, I think it's not talked about enough, but that's also because it, it, it's not necessarily for everybody right now, but experiences like Burning Man and festivals and even just journeying with just friends has been so transformative, you know, to feel play. You know, somebody that tends to be very serious, but have this deep sense of play with other humans has been deeply healing. Uh, Seeing all the artwork and creativity help us imagine what else could possibly happen if we kind of all came together. You know, Burning Man's a good situation where 70,000 people come together 
And, and it's Burning Man almost pretty much came out of psychedelic experiences, you know, came together. We build a city together for a week. I mean, it's really beautiful. Nobody's getting paid, right? I mean, this is ridiculous. It's like we're able to pull off large scale stuff, um, incredible infrastructure in a week if we all get together, you know? So I think that kind of really shows us what else could possibly happen. Um, I think the science needs to keep moving forward in education where people see how effective this is and including how, and there has been some research, but I think it continues of how it does help with empathy, help with creativity, uh, group bonding and so on. So it gets really legitimized so people can bring it into say peer to peer counseling, or, I mean, it's been one of those long time dreams where people have been saying since the sixties that world leaders need to take psychedelics, right? They need to feel though for world leaders to do it, that the stigma is, is not as high. Because they can't be doing something illegal, right? Or they can't be doing something woo-woo or so alternative. So it needs to be embraced by conventional society to a degree. They need to feel safe. They need a strong backing and so on. And they're putting themselves in a very vulnerable position. So they need to, they need to have all their boxes in check you know, before kind of uh, coming to it. But it'd be so amazing to have world leaders that were psychedelically inspired. That's a wonderful place to leave it for today. Uh, Jahan Hamzazadeh, thank you so much for joining us. The book is The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness and Evolution on the Planet. Jahan, where can people find your work online? Yeah, totally. Some websites, psychedelicevolution.org. Uh, it's on all of the platforms right now in terms of Amazon, the Barnes Nobles, Target. The audiobook comes out uh, May 31st. Um, there's a dispute between Penguin Random House and Amazon right now. So they're, they just took off the, the ability to buy the audiobook um, from there right now on Audible. It'll come back later. But on the 31st, it'll be available on all other platforms like Google Play, Apple, and so on. I'm halfway through listening to the audiobook right now. We've got a great narrator for it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And until next time, everybody, keep the old faith and stay high. Such an honor. Thank you. Before I say anything else, I want to point out an expression that Jahan used just now that, well, it really blows me away. When he was talking about being deep in a psychedelic experience, he described the territory as enchanted reality. I'd never heard in Theospace described that way before, and, well, it really hits home for me. So the next time that you're out in nature while under the spell of some magic mushrooms, it may be fun to realize that you are in an enchanted reality. Instead of recalling some of my favorite psychedelic experiences, I'm now going to instead recall some voyages that I took into an enchanted reality. <laughs> I just love that idea. And I have to admit, being drawn by the subtitle of Jahan's book, which is Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution on the Planet. You see, uh, big ideas like that really attract me. Uh, the subtitle that I used for The Spirit of the Internet when I published it in the summer of 2000 is Speculations on the Evolution of Global Consciousness. <laughs> so you can see why his book got my attention. One of the things that Jahan said uh, that really hit home with me as well is the fact that if these substances are declared legal, then many more people may be drawn to investigate them. I can attest to that personally. When I had my first experience with MDMA, it was only the third drug that I'd ever tried. The first two were nicotine and alcohol, both of which are legal. But in the spring of 1984, a lawyer friend of mine told me about ecstasy, MDMA, and at that time it was still legal. So here I was, a 42-year-old Vietnam veteran who had never even tried marijuana because it was illegal. 
Had MDMA been illegal at that time, well, you and I most likely wouldn't be sharing this moment in cyberspace right now. But it was legal, I tried it, and here we are. So uh, if you're looking for a good summer read that will give you some new food for thought, and on top of that, if you happen to be reading it on the beach or in an airport lounge, it also can be a great way to bring psychedelics into a conversation with a stranger. Who knows, that person could become your new best friend. Until next time, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.